Hi everyone. I am very excited to interview Peter Axley. He's 2020 Vice President of AIA and also 2021 President Elect of American Institute of Architects. He's co-founder of Chicago-based firm Architecturist Fund and also adjunct adjunct professor at Art Institute of Chicago. I met Peter at AIA Las Vegas Vegas Convention 2019 and he's very friendly and approachable person. So I'm really excited for this interview. First section is about your personal experience and journey. Mr. Axley, could you tell us about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be talking uh, about architecture with you. Uh I grew up in the north of England on a farm and from as long as I wanted or as long as I can remember I wanted to be an architect. My father is an architect and having grown up on a farm I had a great desire to have a more urban experience so I went and did my undergraduate at Newcastle University on the northeast of England. It's an urban campus. And I was there for 3 years and after that I moved to the United States. I got an internship in in Chicago. I thought that was going to be for a year. And I've stretched it out a little bit since that. And after being in the United States for a little while, I I went back and did my graduate studies in architecture at University of Pennsylvania. And since graduating from Penn in 1990, uh, I moved back to Chicago and I've been here ever since. I see. What is one particular fact about Chicago which made you stay in that city? Now, Chicago is a, an amazingly beautiful place, at least in the summer, and the fantastic lakefront. And obviously, you know, from an architect, it's a really uh, amazing privilege to be here and and to be an architect and, and follow in the footsteps of, you know, the, the great legacy firms in Chicago, you know, from Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Sullivan, Nice van der Rohe, Skidmore Owens and Merrill, and then to work alongside amazing colleagues, you know, the the studio gangs the uh, all of those great contemporary firms John Rohn and architects uh, you know that well we could ha- we could spend an hour talking about all, all of the great architects that have been in us in in Chicago and and that are currently here but so that that was the momentum for coming back here and you know I I I love been here the winters are long but I travel a lot so Mhm. I I I make sure I'm trying to travel in February. <laughs> Can you please uh share us about your work experience at SOM and Venture Scott Brown and Associates? What inspired you to start your own firm? Yeah, I, I, as I mentioned, I was very lucky to get an internship uh, at SOM in 1985 and I thought that was going to be for a year. at the time it was the world's largest architecture firm and there were 600 people we worked on West Monroe Street downtown Chicago so i hadn't just come from england and i i had been to the united states before but i hadn't been to to chicago it was really amazing to be right in the in the thick um of that with some of you know the the smartest best educated people i'd ever come across you know I'd, so um as it is now then was a magnet for really high performing people and i was lucky to be amongst that and 
uh, one, of, one of the things that I say about that experience was that I learned a lot of really great habits. You know, that there was a rigor and an excellence to everything. There were standards for everything, and, and those are, uh, are definitely some things that inform my practice to this day. There was, you know, there's a, a plus and a, and a minus to, to most things. One of the things that was habitual there was that we worked seven days a week, or we seemed to, and we got there early and we stayed there late. And so the idea of work-life balance was uh, um, a little alien. When I was in grad school, I had the amazing good fortune to, to work with Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown and Steve Eisenhower at Venturi Scott Brown Associates. And that same rigor and the same caliber of client existed in that office. But there was definitely this understanding that everybody in the office had a life and they had families. And whilst we, we worked sometimes long hours, Bob and Denise and Steve were always in the office with you. And when they wanted to go home, they let everybody else go home. And, uh, they knew your kids' names. They knew everything about your family. And um, it was a far more equitable, and I'll just say tolerant place. And that was very formative to me. And you know, it, after I graduated at Penn and, and came to Chicago, I had a couple of jobs. But I tasted this, this, this caliber of these places, and I'd also... Um, I guess adopted this idea or this culture of, of having having a life beyond architecture, beyond the architecture office, and so that that, that was one of the impetuses for for starting my own practice ultimately, so that I could be in, in control of, of that. I see. And can you please elaborate on like you mentioned about the habits you formed at SOM? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it, it's a multitude of things. It's about the way you draw and document projects, being very comprehensive, detailing things to the nth degree. It's about things like getting the best photographers to, to photograph your work so that you can share and, and promote that work afterwards. It's about marketing things. I, th I think it's, it, it's really about an excellence of every level. And it, it's about communication. It's about design. It's about your involvement and leadership in a community. And yeah, I, 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 would, I would leave it at that. Surrounding yourself always with the very best people. Mm -hmm. I think those are, those are good habits. And those are things that we insist on at Architecture is Fun to this day. Okay. Thanks for sharing. In 1996, uh, you were awarded AIA Chicago Young Architect Award. What yeah. were the significant factors which contributed in this in this achievement? Yeah, you know, there's a, an amazing sister and brotherhood that exists amongst architects, right? We're, we're very social with each other and you know, our, our idea of Fun is going to a lecture together. 
you know, we, we, we do a lot of socializing together. And the, and the epicenter of that brotherhood and sisterhood is, is AIA. So, you know, the, the minute I was qualified as an architect, I became a member of AIA, and I've always been involved in the AIA community. You know, early on, that was been part of knowledge communities, you know, going to lectures, helping to organize awards programs, and, and, and just been amongst the community. And so, you know, part, part of your aspiration, I think, as an architect is to get acknowledgement for your work. You know, we do a lot of peer review and a lot of awards programs. So habitually, and I suppose this is another habit that I picked up at places like SOM and Ontario Scott Brown, um, share your work through awards programs. And so entering the, the Young Architect Award program was a natural and accessible thing for me in 1996. I was two years into my own practice and I was starting to accumulate a body of work. I was teaching and I was involved in service. So I was fortunate that I had the qualifications and I was given that accolade of, of young architect. And, and one of the things that, that happened immediately with that was it came with a credibility that was acknowledged by more, more broadly in the community. Now that this is something that every architect member of AIA in Chicago pays attention to who's won that. So I became better known through that, perhaps better accepted through, through that acknowledgement and then my clients at, at the time really appreciated it that they knew I was young but um, you know, winning that would, uh, award came with a credibility that assured them that you know, uh, my work was accepted within the architecture community in Chicago and well that's a pretty good standard so it, it's been one of several things that have happened to me in, on this AIA journey and I think when I was elevated to the College of Fellows, when we won awards, design awards, and the design excellence program for our projects, these things uh, affirmed to our clients and to the design community that um, this is good work and it's worth investing in. Okay. And if you can name one book that has the biggest impact in your life, what is that book and how it shaped you? Well, I, I didn't really mention it when I was talking about the, the Venturi Scott Brown office. What was apparent there was that research was critical to every project. And, and that was just um, rolled into the, into the design process. And so it you know, a rather obvious answer to your question would be that learning from Las Vegas has been very influential to me. And just just the idea of ducks and decorated sheds. These are insider architect jokes and postmodern jokes, I suppose. But to, there's there's an attitude and an accessibility to that book, I think, that we we think about in, in all of our work. And I, I suppose, you know, this idea that Main Street is almost all right, you know, that the idea that, you know, if a, a building looks like what it's supposed to be, it becomes more accessible. And I, I, I think that's important in, in our work. 
think it's important that our clients see our work and our design as something that is tailored very specifically to them and that it's accessible and relevant to them. That it's not esoteric or out in left field. So that's, that's one book I think that has been quite influential. And uh, when did you read that book? I think I was supposed to have read it in architecture school, but I perhaps did not read it as carefully as I should have done. I, I, I'm sure uh, I did enough to matriculate with it, but I think once I was in the, the Venturi office, and it, uh, I, I, I felt the need to, I actually just before I started work there, I felt the need to read it more carefully. And, and it's something that I like going back to from time to time. Mm-hmm. Any role model, guide, or mentor who made a significant contribution in your life? I I have a a friend in Yorkshire, in the north of England, where where I grew up, an architect called Brian Wall. You know, I mentioned my father was an architect, but you know, I I think when you have parents. Uh, or family members, uh, you know, often the joke is that they try to discourage you from being an architect. My, my dad never did that. He was always very supportive. But I think it was hard for him probably to be a mentor and it was probably hard for me to sort of acknowledge him as in that role. So uh, a colleague of of his in the architecture community where where I grew up was always very supportive and interested in looking at my work, particularly when I came home from from college in the winter and spring breaks he he was very very supportive and he he was quite adept as a communicator and he helped me a lot in the formatting of my portfolio and he he was also quite a successful businessman so i i was aware through him of I, I, again more good habits and you know, i i saw him he he lives in the south of France or takes spends his time between the south of France and, and Yorkshire and still practices architecture and we spent some time together this past Christmas so he's he doesn't spend as much time in the mentorship role but he definitely was a, an important figure early on in my career mm-hmm. mentors are critical yeah i agree it's really important like to go to this conferences and meet like people who can guide you in the right direction and play a mentorship yeah. role in your life yeah i i think actually it's the reason to go to to conferences at all obviously there's some content and there are these things that we like to do as architects like i said you know go and hang out together but meeting new people and having the conversations like you and I had in in Las Vegas you know they're unexpected but they're relevant and they have meaning to us and you know I, I i think the one thing that always happens is in these conversations is um, you know there's some follow up and and these things uh, start to direct you down pathways that have meaning in your practice mm-hmm. now next we'll move to your professional work section yeah. so 
what has been the proudest moment in your career i think there's lots of them yeah you know, we we could we could look at the chronology and winning that young architect award becoming a member of the college of fellows i suppose winning the election to be president of AIA in 2021 these are uh, extraordinary things that as as an even younger architect i would not have thought possible or would not have thought oh that that would be me so i think that those achievements are an immense source of pride however i would say that um you know working with my pa- partner Sharon uh, with our clients and making a real difference in um the lives of people and their communities um through the work we do and that that's what's really gratifying and and that's what what is is particularly motivating and and it's hard to pull out a, a single client to that and we we work on a lot of different projects at a lot of different scales but i always feel like a project is better for us having been there and having a a relationship and enabling this client or community to to build something of which they're proud and and something that supports their mission but we we hear it quite a lot uh, a client will say to us oh this project is really world class and it's a little disingenuous to their own community you know whether this is in chicago or whether it's in a you know a, a smaller exurban or rural or suburban community I, i'm always surprised that people don't feel like they're already in a world class place they're part of the world community it, it's a compliment i i, I suppose that uh, it's more than they expected that it's beautiful and uh, it, it's perhaps a little different in that community but hopefully that thing that's a little different is actually a mirror of of who they are and how they serve that community. So that, those are the things that I'm most proud of. <laughs> yeah. Any setback or challenges you faced in your career and how did you resolve it? Yeah, I I think when you know the, the economic challenges and when you know sort of work ebbs and flows those are always very stressful times. I I I suppose and this is perhaps not a good business strategy but we have a tendency to trust in the universe during those times. And I suppose one of the ways that we've countered that is by having a diverse outlook at what we're doing and um, part of the for me personally I I I say I spend a third of my time in my practice a third of my time teaching and uh, a third of my time in service and leadership and so during those economic lows in my practice you know, we we've, we've counted the economic low with my my teaching so there's a sort of reliance on a datum there that we can always count on and uh, if when when i've taught more that's perhaps freed somebody up in our in our firm to do more work whereas if i'd have been there all the time i would have wanted to do all of that and perhaps another you know, individual would have had to 
take more of a supporting role or no role at all. So th- those those moments when there's not as much work as you need, that those are the stressful and anxiety or moments of anxiety. But we're, we're doing a lot of things always, so I always feel that there's something else in the background. I see. What is one thing that keeps you excited in your professional work? I, it's always the next project. It, you know, it's thrilling to get a, a new project. And, you know, rather like the awards, it's the beginning of a new relationship and there's an excitement, you know, that somebody um, wants to work with us and is alongside us. Oh, that, that keeps me excited. <laughs> Your firm was awarded 2017 Chicago AIA Firm of the Year Award. What do you think were the key parameters or things which uh, made your firm stand out? You'd have to ask the jury that. What, what we talked about, though, I think in our presentation for that and what some of uh, our colleagues talked about I, th- I think was an attitude and a range of what we were doing you know that at the point that we're winning the award and, and right now we're a firm of two people small but mighty and I, I'd like to think that we open the door for for the o- other firms that are you know not that the giants of, of Chicago architecture, you know, perhaps one or two pe- people firms. And uh, hopefully they think, well, if Architecture's Fund can do it, we certainly can do it. Not to be disingenuous to, to us, but that we can stand there on the same pedestal as AIA Chicago Firm Award winners, you know, with people like Skidmore Owings and Merrill, with Helmut Yarn, Perkins and Will, Uh, this year, Brennan Stuhl and Lynch. Uh, it's a remarkable list of, of firms. Um, Wheeler Kearns. We're, we're very proud to be able to, to stand there. And I think we stand there because we have an attitude for excellence. We are involved in our community. And we help our clients live better lives. Um, the purpose of Architecture is Fun is, is to make everyday life more fun through architecture and then that's not a frivolous statement but I, I think it has something to do with happiness whether you're in school whether you're um, in one of our civic or institutional museum projects you know if you're in a library that we've designed that that place is a provider of joy in your life and if you're the person that we worked with the client that the experience was a source of pride and joy and of participation. And I guess at the end of the day, we we call that fun, right? Yeah. Your wife is co-founder of Architecture yes. is Fun Company. Yeah. So how that has helped you professionally as well as personal level? I, I think we help each other. In our practice, you know, back to the architecture is fun thing, I, I say, sometimes with a glimmer in my eye, 
I, I like to do the things, I only like to do the things that are fun. Well, in the practice, Sharon only likes to do the things that she thinks are fun. And um, we, we like different things and to some degree. You know, over the, the 26 years of our firm, we do everything together and there is a balance in our practice. She is not, she did start tr her training as an architect, but ultimately she, her training is in education and art. So she's supposed to be in a classroom teaching, if you look at the qualification. And as an architect, I, I'm supposed to be doing buildings. We find ourselves most of the time not doing many buildings and Sharon doesn't spend much time in classrooms. What we spend a lot of time is talking about the experiences that people are going to have in the spaces that we create. What's the story that we're going to, to tell through architecture and design? And you know, that balance of what Sharon does and how Sharon is trained. You know, she is a, a great writer. She's a great thinker. Hopefully, presumably, in the a strong architect and a strong designer and we, we bring all of those things together and, and I think we both help each other and, and bring up the caliber of, of what we do. What are the emerging trends in the field of architecture that will shape our way of living in next 10 years? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's a great question and it's, it's pointing to this time but I I think the thing that we really need to get to grips with, I think, is how we're going to disrupt architecture. And uh, I think that that disruption is going to come about through how we tackle environmental stewardship and how architects rise to the occasion of solving the, the critical challenges posed by climate change. And we're going to we're going to do that through uh, evidence-based design. We're going to bring more data to our work. We are going to um, design very specific outcomes. And some of those outcomes you know, that will have something to do with happiness, but they'll also have something to do with building performance. They'll have something to do with the health of the people that are using the buildings and the communities in which they live. And rather than just sort of assuming that that will happen, we're going to have to embed tactics and data and strategies within our design process that will persuade and demonstrate to our clients that this is actually happening, that their buildings will be more affordable, that their buildings will use no energy, that the people within their buildings will test better in school, they'll get better quickly in, in healthcare, that they'll be more productive in that office. You know, that, that these, are, these are things that we need to come to grips with as architects and start presenting evidence-based solutions in all of our designs. And we must do that. We must disrupt our industry from within that way. Or somebody else will do it for us. Mm -hmm. We worked on a, a school project for a high school, a high school science department, and um, the the goal um, was to have students perform at a higher level, 
when we measured that at the end of the project, there were uh, 29% more girls were signing up for AP science project, uh, science subjects. So more more people were more students were interested in, in science. What was also remarkable, a year after the project opened, test scores went up 37%. So that's a combination in our project, we hope of, of good design, immersing the curriculum within that, recruiting the best faculty, and having them participate in the design process and, and to design, not just the, the space that, that we're in, but the curriculum within that space and, and have that all be seamless in the way it overlaps. If test scores go up that much, that's the difference between getting into college and getting into the college of your first choice. That's the difference between getting into a college of your first choice and getting in on a full scholarship. So th these are very measurable outcomes and for a school, if they out, it, it seems a, a reasonable goal to say, we are going to improve your test scores through design. And th these are the types of stories that architects can tell about all of their projects. You can tell them about your, your, the projects that you're designing in school. But we have a tendency to very often to talk about how we've arranged a plan or to talk about a party. But we need to talk about out outcomes and what we're going to give our clients in addition to a place of shelter. And for a school, we're going to improve the test scores of every student. Seems like a good outcome to me. I see. What do you think would be the impact of COVID-19 on the future of architecture profession? Well, that's the thing that we're all thinking about right now, isn't it? It's going to be very different. You know, I, I think uh, we're all, just as citizens, we're thinking about the next time we're going to go to a sporting event or a restaurant. You know, for the, if, if we're spending time outside right now, we're, we're thinking about how we walk down the street. We're, we're looking into coffee shops that we can't go in right now. Or if we can go in, only one of us can go in at a time. So I think in the immediate future, and I, I'm sure these are statements of the obvious, I think we're all going to be nervous and wondering how closely we're going to, to sit. I think it will probably be very strange the first time each of us goes back to a restaurant. The relationship we have with every, everything from the menu to the front door handle, to the server, to the cutlery, to the restroom, these are all experiences and our awareness is going to be heightened by that. And from an architectural perspective, there, there are very pragmatic solutions to how we might open doors, you know, that we might not use our hands to open doors again. We might not be using menus or we'll be doing, using throwaway menus or we'll be using our own personal devices and remote hotspots to you know, make decisions like that, maybe even to order that way. And that the social experience might be different. And I think we can apply this to, to every building type. A friend of mine shared a document 
with me earlier this week. He's been looking at the design of um, the future office space. And he speculates that you'll only be going to your office once or twice a week and that that will be a special occasion. We've all demonstrated how we can work from home uh, and that we can probably do it with some degree of efficiency. I think we're all distracted and, and there's a mental health issue, I think, that is accompanying COVID-19 that is distracting probably our optimal performance from working at home. But I think we are going to look at it very seriously and, and it, will, it will change uh, everything from distancing and all the things I mentioned about the restaurant. I was watching a television show, I was watching... Um, the other night, uh, a British TV show, and they were talking about when kids go back to school, they're perhaps only going to go back to school for two days a week, and they're going to be working on their homework projects for two or three days at home. And that will enable physical distancing in classrooms. Probably recess is never going to be the same, or lunchtime is never going to be the same at, at school. At least until you know we have strong antidotes and 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 cures, and that we can all live our daily lives sort of reassured that even if we do get to you know we we're, we get this disease that there is some pretty advanced cure and and that it's it's likely that we'll recover. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex it's a complex time, and the way we approach architecture will will never be the same I think just in the same way that you know that the Americans with Disabilities Act has changed the way we approach buildings the the outcomes and the, the aftermath of 9-11 has changed how we approach travel and, and how we've had to adjust our environment that the same things are going to happen here and I think architects and other design professionals are going to be very key in, in making sure that well, that we can continue to make everybody's days, like uh, everyday lives, happier and and fun and productive. I'm sure we're going to get back to there. We're, we're just a little nervous about what that looks like, and I'm, I'm sure there are going to be some sacrifices that we need to make and some big investments. And I think we, we're going to have to advocate with our elected leaders for this. That's an insightful answer. Can you talk about your experience in 2009 economic downturn, how you, your peers, and the architecture community were affected and how you tackled it? We, we were fortunate during the last recession that we had a very large project for us that I thought might have bridged the recession. Uh, the recession lasted a lot longer than I thought, so it was rather a cantilever into that. Well, one of the things that happens at Architecture is Fun is um, when we have staff working with us, we tend to be an incubator for young emerging professionals. So often they are uh, undergraduates that will go back to graduate school and um, you know, we're, we're part of that sandwich. 
or we're working with students or gra graduates from um, an architecture program and it could be that they'll spend three or four years with us and then well here's the list of things that they do uh, get married and move somewhere else or start their own offices in some cases they they go and work in other places or, or get some kind of promotion so during the last recession I think we started with six people and over the the course of the early part of the recession, people went and got married and went to graduate school. So uh, as we completed the project, we didn't have to lay any staff off. And I, I, I won't say we designed it that way, but it ended up being a fortunate um, outcome. And as I mentioned before, my, my teaching was also a stopgap. And you know, academia was full of students at that time who you know had taken time off from the professional careers to to get more education and what the one thing that I, I think is critical and is very applicable now and perhaps I'm drifting into advice to architecture students here students that were graduating during the recession there were many of them that didn't have an obvious pathway into the architecture profession and so many of them took alternate alternate paths they're using their their design thinking skills and their, their skills as a as an architect in, in other ways and in, in other professions i think it's it's worth reflecting on that and understanding what architects we're we're, we're problem solvers right and, and you can apply problem solving to, to many, many disciplines. In this time of COVID-19, you know, the, the current crop of graduating students are, are probably seeing their job offers rescinded and their internship offers evaporate. And so some of the alternate routes are, are not going to be there this time because other industries are severely decimated too. And when heaven forbid, it, you, there aren't even going to be jobs in restaurants for you know just to pay basic bills so i think it's really critical right now that we use our design thinking to think about opportunities that exist um, so that we can have a plan b as students and uh, i think part of the responsibility of leaders in architecture and established architectural firms is to step up and, and support architecture students in a way that we've met to a degree that we've never done before. I think this is really, really important. I see. All right. Now we will move to our final section, advice to architecture yeah. students. My first question is, what advice will you give to young professionals who are just entering in the field, especially in this given scenario? Yeah, I think it, that my answer to that one would follow up from what I was saying about having a plan B and architects needing to step up, qualified professionals like myself need to step up to support the emerging professional. I would say that it's really critical right now for every single student to get a mentor. Uh, and you might do that by reaching out to your local AIA. Or, uh, or a professor and ask them 
to connect you with somebody who is established in the field. And, you know, it's the likelihood is that that mentor isn't somebody who can offer you a job right now, but they can offer you advice and they can help you open doors. They can be supportive of you. And, you know, they can be the person who will be a good sounding board for, for ideas that you have. And uh, you will be aware that, you know, you have a, a technical and digital aptitude and an understanding of software technologies that is probably more agile and nimble than that older professional. So there are things that you can give and uh, that, that make that uh, protege and mentor relationship very much a two-way street. And I, I think you should all be conscious of the particular skills that you have right now that could be very applicable and quite unique and think about how you can leverage those. The, the simple answer is get a mentor and do it right now. An AIA membership is free for, for students and on graduation, I believe there's 18 months of a free membership. It also comes with, however our, our next conference looks, it comes with free ad, admission to that conference. So there's extraordinary value in that. What advice will you give to graduating international students who often might come with a prior experience in architectural leadership and collaborations, but struggle connecting with the field? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, that, that the answer to that previous question probably applies here. Perhaps there's a little bit more of a target for an international student. I, one, of the th one of the reasons I think we got much of our early work was because of our connectivity and uh, our, our networks beyond architecture. I, I used to participate in the city of Chicago's Sister Cities program. And the city of Chicago, I think, is, is, has a relationship with, I think, 32 international cities around the world. I, that number may not be right, but being part of that program was one way that introduced me to a, a global community of young, curious minds like myself, but also you know, a, a network of, of global leaders uh, and people involved in all kinds of fields across business and culture that were relevant to the city of Chicago. So I, I suppose, you know, as an international, and you know, I, well, as an immigrant here myself, that is one of the things that I've always been aware of and, and le leveraging my global perspective through appropriate networks too. And I, I think that probably goes for everybody. Don't just hang out with, you know, your, your own friends and don't just hang out with a bunch of architects the whole time. You, know, you, you bring a great global perspective to a community and people are interested in that. But you, you've got to go out there and, and, and talk about it and, and share it. You know, it could be that you know, you're doing that through 
or all, all kinds of volunteer organizations. I see. In your exhaustive experience in the field and especially as a member of AIA, what qualities have you seen in the in a person that has served them well in averting risk and doing well in their career? I think architects have a lot of stories to tell, but we don't always nurture the storytelling ability. And I, I, I would, the people that tell great stories that about uh, why something is important. The story I was telling you earlier about a building is going to improve the test scores of every student. That's a great story. Far more interesting than knowing. How many chairs and students can fit in a room, and what the square footage is, and and what the front, where the front door to that that space is, or what the material is. Rather, telling a, a, a story about a project and why this is going to make a difference. Um, I, I think those are the types of skills I think that that will serve you well practicing those. You know, be, being passionate about what you do. In a way that is accessible. According to you, what kind of job profile is likely to be in demand right now and will be after the pandemic? Like any particular role in architectural field? Oh, that's another difficult question. I I think uh, firms are going to be looking for people. That can help them with research and to communicate ideas quickly. You know, I think mo- most firms um, are very adept at production of, of drawings, of, of building information, modeling. They're not they're not expecting young graduates to come in and be. Up to speed with that, and it's not necessarily what the, the skills that they need right now. But they do need um, people that can communicate that information in accessible and compelling ways, and in the, in, a, in a way that is universally accessible to people. I've been seeing a lot of firms and organizations who are working on. Responses to COVID-19 right now, and there is not the time to produce particularly elegant drawings. People need manuals and checklists, and I think if you look at the the information that AIA has been putting out at AIA.org um, to to help architects, you're seeing a lot of elegant documentation produced very quickly. That is accessible to a healthcare provider, a hospital administrator, a tent manufacturer that is building temporary facilities with a contractor, and is doing that with the Army Corps of Engineers. Architects are sort of part of that, and I think that those types of you know, sort of skills and perspectives that you're picking up and you're in the front line of in, in school now picking up those. Software and technology skills. I think that I think that's what people are probably looking for right now. 
okay. ag agility and, and, and breadth of, of understanding and an understanding of what research is, how to organize and present that research in a meaningful way. I see. Yeah, I think like uh, it even connects to your point of like how we communicate well and even in a, if we communicate that in a compelling story, then it has way yeah. more larger impact. Yeah, and it could be you know that that is an Instagram post. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the way in the you know the the rapidity with which we communicate these days. And we're going to see more and more technologies like that. They will be at the, the forefront of, it, it, it's probably not Instagram per se, but there's an immediacy to, the, to that. And there is, it, information like that is tagged in a relevant way to be useful and accessible to um, you know, a, a broad number of people. And, and globally, and I, I think architects, and particularly young architects, will understand how to start leveraging that to the benefit of a project and the people that we're trying to help with those projects. Can you share some experience you had or advice you received that has a humbling and everlasting impact in your life? You know, when I was a when I went back to graduate school, I, I had two or three years of work experience. And compared to some of my colleagues, perhaps I thought I knew a little more than I did. And one of the things that I did in graduate school on my very first project was to, to, to do something very predictable. And it wasn't a particularly good solution. I, I thought it looked good, but my professor told me to to look at it and, and they, they just told me that it, it wasn't good but I had not challenged myself but I had not really looked at the problem and for somebody that had worked in the places that I had and that was spectacularly humbling I I had not been modest and I, I'd been overly confident about my project and there are times where this happens in, in practice. You think you've understood the client, but you perhaps haven't listened as well as you should have. Or they gave you some signals in their feedback to you that you probably should have heard a little sooner or not been dismissive of. And professional situation, when you don't listen to those things, and particularly when you don't listen to them twice, you know, the, the ramifications for your project and perhaps for your livelihood on that project, um, they start to evaporate really quickly. And it, it's hard to get back into a position of trust and uh, to maintain that relationship once, that, once that's happened. So I, I think that awareness of criticism and to avoid complacency in the way you approach a project is something that I've, I've taken from experiences like that. And to be a good listener and to be empathetic uh, and understanding of, of what somebody's asking for are always very critical. That may seem obvious, but sometimes I think architects sometimes have a tendency to think that we know better. And it's possible that sometimes we have experiences 
that a client hasn't thought about, but we should also listen very carefully to what they believe they need and to respond appropriately to them. I think if you listen to the client and you respond in a in a way that helps them tell their story and that you've demonstrated that you've listened and, and represented that in your solution, I think that you'll find that they're very trusting in allowing you to, for instance, decide what it will look like. And you know, we know as designers there are many there are many solutions to 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 those problems. And so, you know, if, if we have grand design ideas or an approach that we like to, to take, as long as we've demonstrated first and foremost that we've listened, the client is going to trust you to determine um, the way in which you execute it and give you a great deal of freedom. <laughs> How can our viewers follow you and connect with you? So on Instagram, at Fun Architect, and link, uh, link, I have a LinkedIn account. Feel free to, to reach out on, on LinkedIn or any, any social media platforms. I'm on most of them. At Fun Architect, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Sure. And uh, Peter at architectureisfun.com. Thanks a lot, uh, Mr. Peter, for your time. It was a great It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Yep. Thanks for doing this. Uh, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. And we'll see you at the next AIA conference. Oh, sure.